If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 3. In just a few minutes, we're going to be looking at a passage that uh, was just read for us earlier in the service, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. But this morning's message is a little bit different from most of the ones that we have been doing the last few weeks. We've been in Genesis. But for those of you that have been around here for a while, you know that once a quarter, uh, I take a one Sunday break and we talk about one of the nine marks of a healthy church. We've talked about what I believe is the most foundational mark, which is expositional preaching, which basically just means that when we preach from the Bible, the text and the message of the Bible should be the message of the sermon. We don't go out there looking for verses that prove what we wanted to say. We listen to what the Bible has to say. The second mark that we talked about about three months ago was about biblical doctrine and how important it is that as we open God's Word and hear what it has to say, that we understand what does it mean in our lives and how do we build a framework of sound biblical doctrine. And today, we're going to talk about one of those doctrines in particular, the one that is probably the most foundational of anything that we do in this church and in any Bible teaching, Bible preaching, evangelical church, and that is the doctrine of our salvation. How do we come from death to life, from darkness to light, through a relationship with Jesus Christ? And I've entitled the message, What's So Good About the Gospel? You see, we are a society and a culture that focuses on news. We are news obsessed. It's hard to believe that just about 50 years ago, the national news on all three of the major networks was 15 minutes long. That's all there was. Today, we have whole networks, not just networks that are dedicated to news, networks that are dedicated to certain types of news. There are uh, channels that are business news, there are channels that are world news, there are channels that are other types of news, and we are constantly bombarded with news. It is a tremendous industry. But not only is it important to those who broadcast, it's also seemingly important to those of us who consume it. We are always wanting the latest and fastest, the most quick information that we can get. And now with the internet and with our smartphones, we can get information even faster. I actually read one article that said that they believe that in hell, one of the characteristics of hell is there would be a news flash every 30 minutes and no way you could ever be caught up. Because we are just obsessed with having the latest news as fast as we can get it. I guess the only thing that probably would trump speed would be accuracy. We want to make sure the news that we get is accurate. And so you can imagine, I'm sure many of you have heard this story before about a newspaper where the editor opened up the paper the morning after it had been gone to press and was shocked to find that two stories had accidentally been mixed together when the type was set for the paper. One of them was about a new patented uh, machine for killing and processing hogs for, for pork sausage. And the other was about a famous pastor in the town who was having a celebration of his retirement and being given a gold-headed cane for his retirement. This is just a little bit of what the story had to say in the morning paper of the Philadelphia News. Several of Reverend Dr. Mudge's friends called upon him yesterday and after a conversation, the unsuspecting pig was seized by the hind leg and slid along a beam until he reached the hot water tank. Thereupon, he came forward and said that there were times when the feelings overpowered one, and for that reason, he would not attempt to do more than thank those around him, for the manner in which such a huge animal was cut into fragments was simply astounding. 
The doctor concluded his remarks when the machine seized him, and in less than the time it takes to write it, the pig was cut into fragments and worked up into a delicious sausage. The occasion will be long remembered by the doctor's friends as one of the most delightful of their lives. The best pieces can be procured for 10 pence a pound, and we are sure that those who have sat so long under his ministry will rejoice that he has been treated so handsomely. <laughs> this is what happens when news is not accurate. Things get all twisted up and mixed together, and we want to make sure that we have accurate news when we turn it on. And a lot of people come to church on a Sunday thinking we're going to get away from the news for a while and talk about religious things. But let me tell you, Christianity is all about news. It is a religion that is filled with news, news that is timely and news that is accurate. And this isn't some new way to package what we do at church. Jesus himself said, quoting Isaiah, that there is good news that is being brought to people who need to hear it. And Jesus used that same analogy, and in the Greek language of the New Testament, they used the word evangel, which means good news. We call it the gospel. I'm actually going to spend three of these sermons talking about this doctrine, this biblical doctrine of salvation. One of them is going to be talking about what actually happens the moment that a person is moved from death unto life. That'll be in February. And then next May, we're going to talk about why it's so important for us to get out and share that good news with other people. But today, I think we need to lay the foundation of understanding what exactly is the good news of the gospel and why is it such good news. But I think in order to do that, the best thing to do is to begin with what the gospel is not because we are so inundated with our society, with our culture, that oftentimes things will creep into our doctrine, into our thinking that we don't even realize are not part of Scripture. And so before I can tell you what the gospel is, let me share with you a few things the gospel isn't. For example, about, oh, probably 40 years ago or so, a wonderful book came out <laughs> called I'm Okay, You're Okay. And even though it wasn't exactly what the book was about, the title captured people's imagination. And there are a lot of people who think that that's exactly what religion is supposed to do, is to help people feel like, you know what, you're okay. You don't need to worry about bad things and bad uh, ways that you've acted. You need to know that you are okay. And so church becomes a place where you get some self-help. The pews become couches. The pastors become psychotherapists who are asking questions. And the theme is not so much what the Bible says, but what do you feel? And I have news for you. The good news is not that I'm okay and you're okay. As a matter of fact, one of the things we have to understand is that we are, in fact, not okay. I remember several years ago, Loretta Lynn was talking on, I think it was probably CNN, one of those news networks, when Tammy Wynette, her friend, passed away. And she asked through her tears, why is it that everyone I love has to die? Why indeed? Why is that? It's because of the fact that we are not okay in our lives. We are not okay in the way we live. We're not okay in the things that we do. The Bible uses the term transgression, which is an interesting word because transgression literally means crossing over a barrier, crossing over a boundary. And what every one of us has done is we have crossed over the boundary of what God wants from us. In the book of James chapter 2, and you don't need to turn there right now, but let me just read it for you. In James chapter 2, listen to how James describes what our situation is in verses 10 and 11. 
He says, for whoever keeps the entire law yet fails in one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you are a lawbreaker. In other words, the, the truth is not that everybody is okay. The truth is that none of us are okay. None of us are okay. The laws of God are not simply some external standards or statues that have been set up just to see if we can be tripped up or not. Rather, they reflect his very character, his very nature. So to break God's laws is to live against God. Let me give you an example from a marriage. I'll pick mine, for example. Let's say, for example, Sharon asks me on the way to church to stop by Walmart and pick up four or five things that she needs from the store. And she gives me the list of items and how many she needs and what brands she might want me to buy. And so I go by Walmart, and I don't pick up the exact number she asks. I pick up a few more of one thing and a few less of another. I don't get the brand that she wants. I get the brand that I think is better. And I come back home, and I give her the things. She says, what is this all about? I asked you for five, and you brought me seven. I asked you for four. You brought me two. I asked for this brand. You brought me that brand. I said, well, hey, at least I brought the stuff home you asked for. It may not be exactly what you want. You see, if we're honest about that, this isn't really about me misunderstanding her instructions. This is about a relationship problem that I have with my wife. And in the same way for us to say, oh, I only broke 17 of God's laws this week. I think I did a pretty good job. Totally misunderstands the fact that this doesn't have to do with how we behave or whether we obey or disobey. It has to do with what is our relationship, what is our understanding of God and God's rule in our lives. Because you see, God is more than just our passive creator. He also is a jealous lover. He wants us to be faithful to Him. He doesn't want us to be going off on our own direction, doing what we want to do. He wants us to come alongside of Him and let Him be our Father and our guide, our husband and our caregiver. Beloved, we cannot claim to be believers and yet go about doing whatever we think we want, joyfully enjoying our lives as if God's rules don't matter to us. We are not okay. There's no way that we can do that. And yet so many of us do exactly that very thing. This is exactly what we do in our lives. And that's why I have you at Romans chapter 3. Because you see, in Romans, Paul starts out in chapter 1 with explaining about the Gentiles, and how they have transgressed God's laws by the way that they have acted. And then in chapter 2, lest the Jews think they're somehow another better, he explains that the Jews really are no better than the Gentiles are. And by the time he gets to chapter 3 and we get down to verse 9, you hear what he says. He says, what then? Are we any better? Not at all. For we have previously charged that both Jew and Gentiles are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then Paul goes on to say, now we know that whatever the law says speaks to those who are subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no flesh will be justified in his sight by the works of the law. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So in other words, we understand from the scripture 
that we are not okay. And you might say, well, that didn't sound all that good to me. That sounds pretty grim. Well, you know, before we can understand how good God's love is, we have to understand how bad we are. So let me remind you that the gospel is not about you being okay and me being okay. Well, somebody else says, hey, well, but you know, God is love. And, and we just need to understand that God is love. And, and, and God loves everybody and God wants the best for everybody. It reminds me of the newspaper headline that I read about. It said, cold weather brings lower temperatures to community. Okay, well, that may be news in Oklahoma, but it sounds to me like something got left out of that deal. You know, to say that God is love is true. The Bible says in 1 John that God is love. But what kind of love? Think about it as a parent. Every one of us, if we have children, at some point have heard something like this. Your child wants something from you, and you tell them, no, that you, you're not going to do that. It's not good for them. And they say, well, if you love me, you'd let me do that. And you understand that sometimes love means saying no. <laughs> Matter of fact, sometimes love means disciplining for one that disobeys to teach them the right from the wrong. So what is God's love like? What does it look like? How does it feel? What does it mean for God to be a God of love? Well, we learn in the Bible that God is a spirit. So what does the spirit of God love? How do we understand the love of a spirit of God? The Bible says that God is holy. So what does the love of a holy spiritual God look like? The Bible says that God is unique. There's no one else like him. So what does the love of a unique, one-of-a-kind, holy, spiritual God look like? There's only way we can know the answer to that question, and that's for God himself to tell us. I don't know if you remember the last message we were talking about biblical doctrine, and we lined out the fact that in, in looking at the Scriptures, we learn that God is loving, but he's also creative, and he's holy, and he's faithful, and he's sovereign. All of these things come together. So yes, it is true that God is love, but the good news is not just that God is love. There's more to it than that. Well, then there's people who say, well, I know what the good news is. The good news is, is that Jesus wants to be my friend. He wants to be my example. He wants me to follow him, and he'll walk with me and talk with me and tell me that he, I am his own. Well, there's some truth to that, but that's not the only thing that the gospel is. That Jesus wants to be our friend, that he wants to be our example. Because you see, we have a real past that we have to deal with. I don't know about you, but I have several people who I consider to be very dear friends of mine. And as I grow closer to them in my friendship, my relationship with them, there are more things I have to say about myself. I have to say, you need to understand this about me. If, if we're going to be friends, you need to understand that I have some scars. I have some wounds from my past. And I begin to share those things because I trust that person. They're my friend. And, and so we have to realize that in order for us to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we have to deal with our past. We have to deal with things that have gone on in our lives because there are real sins and there is real guilt in our lives. Well, why doesn't God just forgive and forget? Why doesn't God just, just say, I'm going to wipe this slate clean? Jesus, didn't he come just to let us know that we're okay with God and that we could just follow him and everything will be okay? Well, if you look back in Mark chapter 10, it's amazing how many times Jesus says why he came. 
while you're turning there, let me, let me turn back a couple of chapters before that and share with you a way that Jesus took the image of the Son of Man from the book of Daniel and the image of the suffering servant from Isaiah and puts them together. And then we'll get to Mark chapter 10 and see what he says about his own life. Listen to what he says in Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 27. And later on when you get home this afternoon, you can take a look at it yourself in your own Bible. In Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 27, Jesus says, And he went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. And then what did he do? Then, the Bible says in verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. He was openly talking about this. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, because you are not thinking about God's concerns but man's. And summoning the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to be my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit a man to gain the whole world yet lose his life? What can a man give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the Holy Spirit angels. You see, what he's saying there is that, yes, we do follow him. Yes, we do walk with him, but we walk with him to the same destiny that he came to earth to have. And that's what we see in chapter 10. Because in Mark chapter 10, verse 35, this is what, excuse me, not 35, verse 45. Mark 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his Life, a ransom for many. You see, Jesus said from the very beginning that the reason he came to earth was not to be our example, was not to be our friend. The reason he came was to die, to give his life as a ransom payment. And so to say that Jesus just wants to be our friend, he just wants to be our example, is true as far as it goes, but it doesn't tell the whole story. You see, we have to understand all the different things that go into that. We have to understand the economic language of redemption. We have to understand the relational language of being reconciled and having fellowship with Him. We have to understand the legal language of justification, being declared not guilty because someone else has paid our penalty. We have to understand the military language of being on a spiritual battlefield and a spiritual warfare. All of these things come together to understand why Jesus came. And so to say that the good news is simply that Jesus wants to be our friend, he wants to be our example, misses so much of what the gospel really is. Let me just give you one more quickly, and then we'll talk about what the gospel is. This is one of the newer things, and and, and again, there's some truth in it, but it doesn't tell the whole story. And that is that the gospel is not just simply that God is going to renew creation and make everything right again. That we should join him in his work of what he is doing. Beloved, we have to understand that the gospel primarily is not something that we do. The gospel is something that we declare. And what we are declaring is not what we do, but what God is doing. 
But at the same time, we can turn that coin over and say that doesn't mean we can just sit back and, and, and have, make no change at all, do nothing, and let God do it all. He calls us to work with him. So yes, God is remaking creation. Yes, he is bringing peace, but he's doing it through his death, the death of his son on the cross, and through the salvation that comes through him. And he invites us to join him in that work, sacrificing our lives for him and for the work of his kingdom. So now let me take the last 10 minutes or so and talk about what the gospel is. If it's not just about being okay, if it's not about God just being a loving God, if it's not about just Jesus being our friend and our example, if it's not just about um, God creating and recreating the world the way he intended it to be, what is the gospel? Well, simply put, it is this. The gospel is that God in his original design, created us to have a relationship with him, to be able to walk with him in harmony and to listen and follow him. But because of sin, our own selfish, self-serving choices, we broke that relationship with God. Our relationship has been broken and severed, and we now can't have fellowship with God because God is perfect and righteous, and we are imperfect and sinful. And so there is brokenness. And so Jesus Christ came gave his life to pay the penalty, the death penalty of our sin. The Bible tells us that the wage, the payment, the consequence of sin is death. Jesus came, lived a life without sin so that he would not have to die and then willfully chose to die for us. Three days later, he was resurrected to prove that the payment had been accepted by God. And then he ascended back to his father to plead on our behalf as we accept what he has done as the payment for our sins. This is what the gospel is. It is the gospel that brings us into life and it is the gospel that carries us in our life with Christ. We are constantly living under this unmerited love, this grace of what Christ did for us on the cross. I've been a Christian now for almost 28 years. And there are still times when I sin and I feel like, boy, I just, I don't know how I'm going to take care of this. I don't know what I'm going to do. I feel terrible. And I have to be reminded again that there is no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for that sin, the sin I'll commit tomorrow and next week and next month and next year. And so that grace, that gospel, that good news continues to flow out that God, through Christ, has bought us out of the slave market of our sin, has judiciously declared us to be righteous in his sight. And at the very center of that is what we call the exchanged life. Jesus Christ exchanged his righteousness for our sinfulness. It is meaningless to speak of accepting or receiving Jesus Christ if we do not believe this message and rely on Christ completely and alone for our salvation. Jesus Christ exchanged his righteousness for our sinfulness. He took our sinfulness upon himself and gave us who receive him and receive his payment for our behalf the righteousness of Christ in us. And it demands a radical response from us. 
This is not something we can just add on to our lives. It's not something we can add on to the things that we do. It's not something we can say, yeah, I've got Jesus in my life. I listen to him, but I go ahead and do whatever I want. I make my own decisions. It doesn't work that way. What we have to do is we have to repent and believe. Repent and believe. And those two things almost always in Scripture go together. And they always go together in that order. <laughs> it's very interesting. There's repentance and belief. What is repentance? Repentance literally means to turn from one way of thinking to another. I've been reading a book, ironically of all things, on the history of science. And in that book they talk about revolutions, scientific revolutions. And if you think about it, that's an interesting word, a revolution. Because if you think of a revolution, on the one hand you think about like a military revolution or a scientific revolution. But there's also the other meaning of that word, which is for something to turn and make a revolution. It turns to a different direction. And that's what happens. In a scientific revolution, people have been thinking one way about something, and suddenly it changes to think a different way about it. In a governmental revolution, people are under one leadership, and then they change and are under new, new leadership. And so in a sense, repentance is a form of revolution. We revolt against our own way of life, our old way, our natural way, our self-serving, self-seeking, self-pleasing way of life, and we turn to Christ and find greater pleasure, greater satisfaction, greater joy, greater peace than we ever knew in our life before. It is literally a revolution. And it must happen before we can come into life with Christ. And then along with that repentance comes belief. Now what belief am I talking about? Well, I don't just mean believing in facts about Jesus. There are all kinds of things that we can believe that don't really make a whole lot of difference. We can believe that the people living in Iceland read six times more books than any other people on the planet. Okay, I believe that. We can believe that Victoria Falls has millions, if not billions, of gallons of water that flow over it. We can believe that. But it doesn't have any impact on our lives. The kind of belief I'm talking about is one that is something that we not only know in our head to be true, but we trust in our hearts. We rely on because we believe it, and we're willing to stake our lives and our future. Repent and believe. And what's so interesting is there are two sides of the same coin. I cannot begin to truly believe in what Jesus has done for me until I understand how lost I am in my old way of living, and I repent of that. I have a revolution away from that into a new life. But at the same time, I can't say that I believe in Jesus Christ and truly trust Him if I don't see evidence of that in the way that my life is changed as I turn away from my old way and turn to Him. So repentance precedes belief, but belief also is evidenced in the repentance and the change of life that comes from it. So let me conclude with this. We need to understand that Christianity is not about some type of emotion. It is not just some type of philosophical, theoretical, metaphysical way of living. Christianity has a cognitive, specific content to it. There is good news in the Christian message, in the gospel. And it is timely, and it is accurate. It is true. It's something you can believe in and something you can receive. Have you stopped, if you've been a Christian a while, have you ever stopped and thought about what it is that you really believe in? B.B. Warfield, a theologian from another generation, worded it like this. 
A dozen ignorant peasants proclaiming a crucified Jew as the founder of a new faith. Bearing as the symbol of their worship an instrument which was the sign of ignominy, slavery, and crime. Preaching what must have seemed an absurd doctrine of humility, patient suffering, and love to enemies. Graces undreamed of before. Demanding what must have seemed an absurd worship for one who had died like a malefactor and a slave. And making what must have seemed an absurd promise of everlasting life through one who had himself died. And that between two thieves. This is the gospel. And it is what we believe, is what we have come to see in our lives to be true. I need to get a copy of the t-shirt I saw the other day. It said emblazoned across the front of it, the one who dies with the most toys still dies. You know what? Every one of us dies. The atheist and the evangelist, the philosopher and the Christian, the actor and the pastor. Everyone dies. And the question is, what have we seen to be the good news about life? Is it just that we're all okay and we need to have more confidence in ourselves? Is it just that God loves us and He's going to take care of everything for us? Is it just that Jesus wants to be our friend and our example and we should do the best we can to try to live a good life? Or is it that we are broken and we are sinful and there is no hope for us? And knowing that, as only God could, he sent his son to die and take the penalty for our sins. So that not only could we move from death to life, but even as we continue at times to sin as Christians, we can find forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation and healing in our lives. We continue to grow more and more in Christ-likeness. So my question to you today, my friend, is, have you heard the gospel? And have you accepted it as good news for you? If not, today would be a wonderful day for you to do just that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. I think of all the things that we need to agree on about these nine marks, this one is the most critical. We must understand that the good news of the gospel is not that we're all okay just like we are. It's not that you just love us without there being any consequences because of your righteousness and holiness. It's not just that Jesus wants to be our friend and our guide because he calls us to die to ourselves. It's not just that you are remaking the world into something wonderful and beautiful, which you will do someday. But that we have to be involved with you in living lives that are honoring to you. Father, thank you for the truth of the gospel which is that in our sinfulness, in our lostness, you reached out to us because we could not reach out to you. You brought us life and hope and help. And you offer it to those who in repentance and belief receive Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord. So today, Father, for those who are in this room right now, 
watching this video. May my presence be as real as it will be in the sanctuary. But more importantly, may your presence be real right there at the beacon as you, by your Spirit, wrestle with people's hearts. Father, there are many people who have called themselves Christians, sometimes for decades, but they have never truly understood the gospel. And I pray that today the scales would fall from their eyes. There are others who just need to be reminded of how beautiful the gospel is and why it is such good news. And I pray that today we will be encouraged and reminded again that there is no gospel without Jesus. There is no life without Jesus. There is no hope without Jesus. There is no future without Jesus. And so today, work in our hearts as we sing, as we respond, in the name of the one who is everything to us, all in all, Jesus Christ, we pray.